Okay, we're a little early, but if you'd like to turn to Revelation 22, I'll get started shortly. If this was a, were a normal church, <laughs> and it isn't, thanks for the memo, by the way, Tony. I, I dressed like you told me to. Um, but if this, this was a, a normal church, and it wasn't, I recall my early days doing 11 studies a week, including radio and being all over the map from Elwood City to Ford City to Indiana to Greensburg to Aliquippa, Oakland, Monroeville. But my first assignment really from uh, the original affiliation I was with was to be in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And Larry and Judy remember there was initially there were supposed to be 150 people there. And they wanted to send me from Bible school, and I accepted. That was after an initial offer to go to Holland fell through, and then Southern California, and then I think another one was Cape Cod. And so I said, sure, I'll go to Indiana, but I thought, it was, I thought they meant the state. So I went home and looked at a map, and I said, oh, it's kind of far away, but. But uh, the first time I came down here, it was courtesy of Dave Tom, who we had Bible studies in his home, him and Katie's home, for several years. And I was headquartered here in Pittsburgh, but traveled there and did a couple Bible studies a week. The first time I came down, it was courtesy of Dave, who flew me and four other pastors down from Massachusetts. And one of the first families who welcomed me in this area, we came in on kind of a wave of controversy already, but was the Bennett family. Marge Bennett was Katie Tom's sister, and her family attends still this church to this day. And she hosted a Bible study in her home, her and her husband, Bill, and I always remember their hospitality. If, if this was a normal church, I'd have to say she would be one of the founding members of Tetelestai. And she went home to be with the Lord on this past Sunday. I had the privilege of speaking with her family, including her husband, Bill, her daughters, Leslie and Amy, who come here, and son, Mike, and Leslie's husband, Mark. And we talked about arrangements because they knew that the time was inevitable. And that night I got a text that Margaret Margie, as we knew her Marge, Mary Bennett McKelvey, had passed into the presence of the Lord. And I certainly recall her. I'm looking at a picture of her, of her even now as I make this announcement provided by the Bowser Funeral Home, and she was always extremely cheerful and had the joy of the Lord. She was a wonderful ambassador of Christ and welcomed me and other members of the team into her home so many times and was, again, an effective member of our first congregation. And in the midst of controversy was one whose love and faithfulness was true and who loved the Lord all the way through and was with us in one way or another for the 37 years that I've been here. So I have the wonderful privilege this Friday of 
speaking at her memorial service at 3 o'clock, and the family wanted it to be announced to all of you at the 3 o'clock on February 26, 2016 at 3 p.m. at Saving Grace Church in Indiana, PA. That's on 921 Hospital Road in Indiana, PA. goes without saying that our sympathy is extended to her whole family on the loss of a brilliant light in whom we were all privileged to bathe in that light while she was here. But also in the confident expectation of seeing her again in glory and knowing that she is experiencing the fullness of joy right now, the joy that she continually exhibited as a living epistle of the joy of Christ is now being experienced by her at the right hand of God in its absolute fullness, and we have that confidence also. So anywhere anyone is free to attend this gathering, and it's always a privilege to gather around families, especially in their grief, to share their grief and to share their joy of the expectation of an inevitable reunion. Revelation 22, <clears throat> 13. And then we're going to backtrack slightly into Revelation 20 and verses 14 and 15. Personally, these verses in Revelation 20, 14 to 15, especially 15, were to me as a young Christian reading the scriptures, not having a teacher, fortunately having the Holy Spirit ultimately as a teacher. They were the most disturbing and disconcerting to me, and now they are among the most comforting to me, thanks to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. Tonight, then, I'm going to provide some what I call data of the lower blade. Our scissors analogy means that the upper blade in the scissors action is the profound and great truths of theology, and the lower blade is the provision of necessary data sometimes exegetical data. So sometimes we could even think of the upper blade as theology, the lower blade as exegesis. And so in the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which is a profound theological idea, what I've been doing or attempting to do is to demonstrate that that theological idea is indeed scripturally documented on hundreds of, of in hundreds of scriptural data, and we'll take that up again tonight. I'm going to teach you how to read or write Greek tonight by a special word. It's the word telos. So if you have your notes, let's try it. You do the T in the Greek, which is sort of a almost like the English T. The E, that's the tau, then the epsilon, the E, and the accent falls on that syllable. Then you have the lambda the lowercase lambda, T-E-L, and then the Omicron O, which appears in the penultimate letter of words. And then we have the sigma, which in the ultimate letter in a word comes out like this, sort of, a sort of like our S. If the sigma is found within the word, it looks like this. But telos, T-E-L-O-S, that's our keyword. It'll be the keyword in our lower blade data tonight. And it's found in Revelation 22:13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the end, ta telos, the end. And that's what we want to consider tonight. But 
Given that, Revelation 22, 13, we'll go to Revelation 20, and I have to explain a couple of other Greek syntactical concepts, and this will be our lower data for tonight. So let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation, assuring ourselves of the influence of the Holy Spirit who is present to teach. Reveal the glory of your Son through the teaching of the Word tonight. We ask it in his name. Amen. Revelation 20, I have the Greek text in front of me, the translation. And when you translate, you necessarily interpret. Translation is interpretation. And I want you to see and pay attention to this translation. Death and Hades, it says. And it starts with the Greek word Kai, which is going to be effective tonight and important in our lower blade data. Kai, which means and. It doesn't have to necessarily be translated. Death and Hades. Now, I've translated these together because of a concept called Hendiades. And I don't want to confuse you because this is important, though. Hendiades, that's H-E-N-D-I-A-D-Y-S. That comes from the Greek word that means one and the Greek word that means two. Hendiades is when two entities are rolled up into one and considered to be one entity. Death and Hades are both personified as enemies under Jesus Christ's feet, or which will ultimately be annihilated in the telos, in the end, in Christ, who is the end. So a hendiades is the making of one out of two, death and Hades. Consider that then one entity. John sort of does that when he talks about the four horsemen that come out of the gate, and he says that one of those horsemen is death, And Hades rode with him, and so they're considered as one entity there. So John intended them to be considered as one entity from Revelation 6. So, again, translation is often interpretation. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, the word chi is used to introduce verse 15. And this is, again, this is technical, but you have to see how the lower blade data supports the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. The chi here, usually translated and, and is an ep-exegetical chi. Now that's ep plus exegetical. Ep-exegetical means explanatory. Chi has an explanatory function. And so it would be translated in our English as simply, that is. It's epexegetical. The epexegetical use of the chi. And once again, this is Hilaria Ramelli's theory, which I don't just take someone's theory without backing it up, without looking it up myself and getting into the raw data of the Greek. And so I followed it up, and I agree with her that this is the epexegetical use of the chi. So the translation would come out like this. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Verse 15, that is, he, that's death and Hades together as one entity, who was not found written in the book of life, is thrown into the lake of fire. 
Like the proverb writer, we have sort of a distich here. John's saying the same thing twice and in 14 and 15. The one who is not found written in the book of life is death and Hades. I've taught this before, but I want to get a little more exacting on it tonight, a little more precise. And as the Patriot said in the book, in the Mel Gibson movie to his sons, aim small, miss small. I'm aiming small in order to miss small. I'm getting down to, the, to a tiny detail in order to be much more accurate and to hit the center and the X ring. So again, the translation, death and Hades by Hendiatus are considered to be one entity. By personification, Thanatos and Ades, or death and hell as it's often translated, are one person. The de- death being death itself, Hades being the place in which the dead are found, or we sometimes see it as hell, death and hell. So again, pay attention carefully to this. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. That would have to be the death of death. That is, the chi here, and is not and, but an exegetical. that is. That is the same way to say that he who was not found, anyone or the someone who was not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, does not refer to creatures at all or human beings, perish the thought, but to death and hell as a single entity. So he's saying the same thing twice by repetition. Repetition is extremely important. And some people get tired of it. In fact, I recall, I've been recalling lately um, a story. It's an anecdote. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter because it illustrates the point, but I think it's true. There was a famous preacher who came to a place and spoke apparently every night for a week. And every night he spoke on the same subject. You must be born again. The next night, you must be born again. You must be born again. The host pastor finally got a little perturbed with him after the sixth night and said, why do you always have to speak the same thing? You must be born again. And the guest speaker said to the pastor, because you must be born again. And I thought that was a pretty good answer. Maybe some people got the point when he was done after his seventh message. I don't know. But the point here is it's a repetition. Death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. That is, the one not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades. These two are entities that have no existence on their own. Both death and Hades have no existence on their own. Jesus Christ is the arche, the beginning, and the end, totelos. In the beginning, when God created everything, there was no death. There was no Hades. There was no sin, whether it is personal or the social surd of sin, which makes society all screwed up. And so before, in the beginning, there was... God and creation. And in the end, the same condition will pertain, God and creation. No death, no Hades, no evil, no sin. Because the evil has no subsistence or existence on its own. It was not part of creation in the beginning. It can't be part of creation in the end. Philosophically, this is called, so tonight's a class. Let's call it a class. It's a metaphysical pillar 
that came from Plato and other philosophers, and it's called the ontological non-subsistence, or call it existence, non-existence. Ontological, that's simply the study of being. There's either being, and that's an ontological existence, or there's non-being, and that's an ontological non-subsistence. Evil, by definition, is an ontological non-subsistence. It does not exist on its own. It did not exist in the original creation, therefore it is not a creation of God or a creature of God, and it has been posited by philosophers as well as the patristic theologians based on this metaphysical pillar of ontological non-subsistence of evil that evil will be done away with. Now, the Bible agrees. They say the same thing about death, that death will cease existing. And, of course, this is what the Bible teaches in Revelation 1-4. Death is no more. The last enemy to be destroyed or totally demolished in when all enemies are placed under the feet of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15-26 is death. Death and Hades are personified. That's why sometimes you see them with their, the uppercase D-E-A-T-H and the uppercase H-A-D-E-S. But they are considered one person. The one whose name is not found written in the book of life is death and Hades itself or evil or we could say sin. Romelli makes a point that the Vulgate Latin Bible and the other translation of the Latin called the Vetus Latina. Those are two Latin translations of the Bible. I have the Vulgate Latin Bible and starting to pick up a little bit of Latin, and Revelation 20, 15 says, Et qui non est inventus in libro vitae, scriptus missus est in stagnum ignis, which supports the Greek text in which the word and in, is followed by the one, or someone who is not found in libro vitae, the book of life, written, scriptus, is cast or missus est in stagnum ignis or lake of fire. So that agrees. Now, characteristic of what I've been doing lately, and I've been quoting Romelli a lot because the book is expensive. <laughs> That's one reason. And it's $328. So it's a textbook. So I said, let me make the most of this since that money was put forth gratefully. Ilaria Romelli, page 47, says this. It may also be supposed that Kai, at the beginning of verse 15, is ep-exegetical. She has in parentheses, that is, rather than and. First of all, it is death and hell that cannot be found in the book of life, because they are not creatures of God. Death, like evil, was not created in the beginning by God and will not subsist in the end. Now, I'll break here just to say, I think you might be getting the point that when I'm speaking about Jesus Christ saying, I am the beginning and the end, that in him there is neither death, nor Hades, nor evil, nor sin. He became sin to put away sin. And in the end, there will be no evil, no death, because Christ is the resurrection and the life. So the exegetical function, she says, of Kai is well known in the Koine, and here she makes this point. 
precisely for Johannine works. She gives examples of this chi, the apexegetical chi, from John 4.10, John 5.25, and John 1.16. I looked up all of these in the Greek text and found her hypothesis to be correct. And it is supported by the Latin translation of Revelation 20, 14 to 15, both the Vetus Latina and the Vulgate. Both of these have a singular pronoun endowed with a relative indefinite sense at the beginning of verse 15. As for the Vetus Latina, Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, its principal witness has the singular as in the Greek original. Et mors et inferni missi sunt et in stagnum ignis secundum mortem. And I won't read the rest of the Latin because you'll think somebody will charge me with showing off. So and he reads the rest of it. I'll have to, I guess, now. Et si quis non est inventus in libro vitae scriptus, missus est in stagnum ignis. That's the, uh, that is... Irenaeus giving witness to that Latin translation, and it, it gels splendidly with the Greek, where death and Hades are considered the one thrown into the lake of fire. The Vulgate, with its relative clause, she goes on to say, offers an even better confirmation. And then the Latin is read again. The Coptic version, the unfortunate Association I have with Coptic now is those Christians that were beheaded by ISIS, Coptic Christians. It seems interesting that Satan would vent his wrath on Coptic Christians who support, in many cases, universal salvation. That seems to be the thing that gets Satan's people the most upset. But the Coptic version of Revelation 2014 Ilaria says, supports my hypothesis even more strongly. It includes death and hell as a sort of hendiades, so that the initial and of verse 15 can even more easily be taken as ep-exegetical. It is primarily death and hell that are not found written in the book of life and undergo the second death. Then she gives what is known as the Sahidic version. These are all legitimate versions of the scripture because these go back to the Middle East. The Sahidic version reads like this, and this is the translation. And they cast the death with hell into the lake of fire. This is the second death, which is the lake of fire. That is him whom they did not find written in the book of life. They cast into the lake of fire. Again, death and Hades is the hymn that is cast into the lake of fire. So there's no evidence here of creatures of any kind being cast into the lake of fire, of human beings of any kind being cast into the lake of fire. So again, the word ep-exegetic, in order to verify that, I looked up my Wesley Perschbacher grammar, and he defines ep-exegetic as, quote, a grammatical function that is explanatory. So if you see this little word chi, this is part of our lower blade. It's representative of, it's documenting the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ by showing that a verse that is often discussed or utilized 
by traditional Christians to be, well, that means anyone that's hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people not found written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And that's not the case, at least not in this verse. If you're going to use Revelation 20, 14 to 15, to support your traditional position about people going to hell, you can't use that. Not anymore. So find another one, and I'm sure you will. So examples of the epexegetic chi are John 4.10, in which it says, and this happens throughout John. I remember studying that verse by verse in the Greek, word by word. It says, Jesus answered saying. Many times the word chi is used, Jesus answered and said. But what it means is Jesus answered this way. And yet the chi is epexegetical. Same in John 5.25, more intriguing. Jesus said, an hour is coming and is now. The word and, if that's exegetical, Jesus is saying an hour is coming that is now. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And that's proven by Lazarus coming forth and by others raised from the dead. John 1.16, we've looked at that recently, where it says we have all received from his fullness and or chi, grace after grace, but if it's exegetical, which I think it is, we have all received from his fullness, that is, grace after grace. And so once again, look carefully at Revelation 20, 14 to 15. Look at this carefully, because this is extremely important, what I call lower blade data. Death and Hades. This would be my translation, which I see from the Greek, and I see from two things. The hendiatus, which renders death and hell as one entity. And two, the epexegetical use of the conjunction chi, meaning that is, or even I-E, as we say it. Here's how it comes out. Death and Hades, I'm doing 14 and 15 back to back together. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. That is, he, meaning death and Hades, who was not found written in the book of life, is thrown into the lake of fire. And so, once again, what was not existent had ontological non-subsistence in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and then all the creatures came forth with life and with reproductive life, There was no sin, there was no evil, there was no death, there was no Hades, and so they had ontological non-subsistence. They did not come into being as a creative act of God. And so, death, for example, came into being as a kind of providential judgment on mankind. It was a gift. Death is not a bad thing in the sense that it it prevents the ongoing of evil but death will be no more because Christ will comprise everything and he is the resurrection and the life and so again this is all going toward our passage in Revelation twenty two thirteen. so consider again the metaphysical pillar is as what it's called of the ontological non-existence of evil and of death and of Hades evil is not just the absence of good it isn't anything it, is, it has no existence on its own, and it is not part of the creative entities. This philosophical axiom, which is the ontological non-existence of evil, 
was applied by many of the patristics, that is the theologians from Origen to Ariogena, to the annihilation of death and of evil in the new creation. Their reasoning is that since evil has no existence in itself, and since evil was not a part of the creation in the beginning, then it will not be part of the universal new creation. Now this has a clear a documentation rather in Revelation 21 for death was no more and this agrees with Paul on purpose I think John on purpose knew Paul and agreed with Paul and reproduced Paul's eschatology from 1 Corinthians 15 24 which begins with this and in the end the son will hand over the kingdom to the father and it ends up in 28 that God may be all in all. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be removed from existence is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 and Revelation 21, 4, in my view, supports the notion of John and Paul in a tremendous affinity, a tremendous agreement theologically and eschatologically. So rather, evil will go back to its original state of non-existence altogether. The same is applicable with regard to death and sin. As Hosea 13, 14 says, God says, death, I will be your plague. I'll be the plague that destroys you. Death was destroyed in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. Sin was overcome and destroyed. He made sin not to be is one of the meanings for Hebrews 9.26. He appeared in the climax of the times, of the ages, to put away sin by the offering of himself. So sin is put away. It's made not to be an entity in the final new creation. And so the same that's applicable with with evil is applicable with regard to death and sin. Now, to me, it's interesting, and this popped up in my mind, and when that happens, I love it because you know it's the Holy Spirit because I couldn't have thought of it otherwise. To me, it's interesting because when Jesus was called to the home of a synagogue leader whose 12-year-old daughter had died. Now, she had died. She was dead, as we see it. Dead as we see it. And Jesus said, to them, he said, Don't be afraid, stop fearing, only believe. And then he went to the home. And when he was in the room with this young lady, he said to the people there, She's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him out of the he basically they laughed him off the stage, as it were, and he kicked some of them out of the room because he didn't who wants that kind of people around? but only sleeping, Mark 5.39. Now, we may ask, why did he say that? And I think the answer is because in the presence of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, death is not. It's not that she wasn't dead. I believe she was dead. She was dead. But when Jesus was there, when Jesus is present, death isn't there. She's only sleeping. That's why Paul refers to those who have died in Christ as those who are asleep in Jesus. Because where Jesus is, there is no death. Because he said, I am the resurrection 
and the life. She's not dead because Jesus is there. And so he takes her hand and he says, Talitha kumi, in the, as we've referred to recently, Talitha kumi, which in most translations, little one arise, but in the Aramaic, one Aramaic translation, it means little lamb arise. And immediately this 12-year-old girl got up and began walking to the other astonishment of the witnesses. I think they said because she was 12 years old, she got up and started walking. If you have the idea that the girl is six months old and she gets up and walking, then, then that's a little weird. But John, the, Mark said she got up and started walking, and then he puts a parenthesis, for she was 12 years old. Let me explain. She was a 12-year-old girl. She got right up, and it said to the utter astonishment of the witnesses, Mark 4, 5, 44, 41 to 42. So, in our view, she was dead. The physiological functions that happen in a living person had ceased. She was dead. But when Jesus said she's not dead, it's because he was there. And so we, I think we can say this about all people who have died in the Lord. They are not dead. They are not dead because they are where Jesus is, and therefore they must be alive. Jesus is the beginning, or the arche, and the end, or telos. I'm emphasizing telos tonight because I've emphasized arche many times, including in our study of Colossians. Colossians 1.15, he is the arche, the beginning, and he is the icon, the, be- the image of the invisible God. And that ultimately means that he is going to restore the image of God in every human being. And in fact, the image of God in all of created reality. And that'll mean the expulsion, the radical eviction, and the radical eradication of death, evil, and sin. Sin is not just an essential nature of people in Adam, which is transmitted. It is also... Lawlessness, by definition. But sin is also what Lonergan called a social surd, S-U-R-D. It's an irrational and almost inexplicable function of society that makes society warped, evil, violent, irrational, and all the rest of it. The social surd will be removed in the new creation in the new Jerusalem. So he's the beginning and the end. And there are Latin expressions that help us understand the Greek words arche and telos. Arche and telos. I am the arche, A-R-C-H-E. Transliterated would look like this. Arche and totelos. T-E-L-O-S. Telos. I am the beginning and the end. In Revelation 3.14, he said, I am the beginning of the creation of God. He is, in him is embodied the new creation altogether. In him there is life and no death. In him there is righteousness and no evil. In him there is no sin. And he put away sin. He is the beginning is also the end. There are two Latin terms which describe, or two Latin expressions that help us understand the Greek words arche and telos. Arche is related to what the Latin calls terminus aquo, which is the term from which. Telos is related to terminus ad quem, which is the term to which. 
This is the term or the boundary from which, that is, we could say from which all things came, and telos is the boundary or the limit to which or the destiny to which all things go. From him arose all created reality. To him, telos, all created reality returns. As Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him are tapanta, the all things. So he is not only that from which all things came, but the goal to which all things are directed. And in one sense, the telos outdoes the arche, because in the arche he was divine, and all the divinity of God was in him. But now in the telos, all of divinity and all of humanity are in him bodily, and he embodies all human nature. So at the end, things will be as they were in the beginning, but then some. There will be no death, no Hades, no evil, all of which had no creaturely existence in the beginning, the arche, and will have none in the end. In the beginning, all is life. In the end, all is life, because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five, and he fills up everything with himself. If he fills up Tapanta everything with himself in Ephesians four ten, then he makes everything alive. And in first Timothy six thirteen, he is the God who gives life to all. Now, this is a class, so it should be chock full, as my high school social studies teacher used to say, today's teaching will have everything from soup to nuts, and that's probably what I'm having here tonight, everything from soup to nuts. I'm serving a lot of different things. The patristic theologians associated apocatastasis in Acts 3.21 with telos, or the end. I took parts of three days out to look at this word telos in Ramelli's book, and it was almost always associated with apocatastasis. So this is my symbol for apocatastasis, was equivalent to telos, or English transliteration telos, for you lazy note takers. The apocatastasis of Acts 3.21 was almost always related to, if not equated with, the telos, or the end, or the goal to which all of things are headed. And, again, the patristic theologians associated that together. And you find apocatastasis in Acts 3.21 and telos in 1 Corinthians 15.24 to 28, but most notably in Revelation 22.13 for us. For example, Origen, that's O-R-I-G-E-N, in his commentary on John 13. According to Romelli on page 16, writes, quote, the end... And that's Tautelos, he wrote in Greek, Origen wrote in Greek, the end will be at the so-called apokatastasis. So they are equated. In that no one then will be left an enemy. 
says Origen. If it is true that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, while the last enemy will be radically eliminated, death. Again, Ramelli, page 318. Eusebius, he's another one of the, we, we used to study him in Bible school. He was famous for being a church historian, but I think now he's more famous for being a student of origin and a strong universalist. Eusebius, and this is a quote from Romelli, page 318. I hope she doesn't get too angry if she sees this online someday and says, man, he basically quoted my whole book. I also paid $328 for it. Or <laughs> was someone donated? You, you, some of you, I think, helped donate for that. But anyways... Eusebius interprets, again, Acts 3.21 in connection with Paul's prediction of the final liberation of all creation from corruption. Did you hear that? Eusebius interprets, again, Acts 3.21, that's the apocatastasis verse, in connection with Paul's prediction of the final liberation of all creation from corruption. They didn't give the verse, I will. It's Romans 8.19-23. And Romans 8.19 should be taken in conjunction with 8.29, where it says we have all been predestined into conformity with God's Son. That includes all creation as well as all humanity. And this is what I call, in turn, the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4.4. That's the gospel that is being hid today, hidden today. And that's also part of the reason for the cultural collapse out of which bizarre new politicians are coming forth from a breakdown of culture. And people are rushing to extremes. They're rushing to people who they don't even really know who they are or what they represent. And that's because, as I've said often, and I don't mean to do this with any malice connected with it, but way back in Old Stone Church, I said, I quoted P.T. Barnum, who said, there's a sucker born every minute. And I said, let me moderate that and modify that to in evangelical Christianity, there's a sucker born every 30 seconds. The stuff they lean to, the stuff they go to is if I believed in an antichrist, I'd see the evangelical movement running to them faster than anyone else. They don't have any idea as to the gospel of the glory of the Christ. And so that affects every other part of life. It affects people's discernment. It affects their perception. It affects their enlightenment in all other ways. And thats I'm not making a political statement by that. I am bringing forth a kind of social commentary because I'm not really politically minded. The patristic theologians then, and again, I'm quoting Romelli on page 318, Eusebius interprets Acts 321 in connection with Paul's prediction of the final liberation of all creation from corruption. I go further, and Romelli, I found, agrees with this after I agreed with it, that John agrees with Paul. John's eschatology in Revelation 19 to 22 is exactly like Paul's in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. In fact, there are four allusions to 1 Corinthians 15 in the very last chapter of Revelation. We'll get into that. So he, that's Eusebius, interprets the reference to the breaking into pieces in Psalm 2.9. Remember, we've studied that when 
In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says he breaks his enemies into pieces. He's quoting Psalm 2.9. It's a messianic quotation. Eusebius interprets the references to the breaking into pieces as evidence of the restoration. Because he says the son's action of breaking his enemies into pieces must be understood as aimed at remolding them as is confirmed by Jeremiah 18, 6 through 10. That is to restore them to their original condition. And I agree with that. I think that's very verifiable in scriptures if you take the lower blade data. Because when he says, I will break them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel is shattered. In Jeremiah 18, God taught the meaning of that. Look, the potter has a vase destroyed. He doesn't throw it away. He puts it back on the wheel and remolds it again. And that's restoration. On page 362 of Romelli's book, she gathers basil, that's, or you could say basil, B-A-S-I-L. He was the brother of Gregory Nissen. Nissen, make that. One of the Cappadocian fathers. There was Bardason, B-A-R-D-A-I-S-A-N. Origen and Gregory Nissen. She puts them all together in the same belief. And quote this, this quote. I pulled this quote. Basil is very clear in his elucidations of Isaiah regarding the ultimate telos. He does not foresee the destruction or the exclusion of rebels, but their conversion and restoration to peace. With a view to the universal eventual harmony, just as delineated in Origins, Bardason's, and Gregory Nissen's conception of the telos. Not only is it their conception of the telos, it is the biblical conception of the reconciliation of enemies. All things will be reconciled by the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross. Lower blade data, Colossians 1.20. Furthermore, if you turn to Psalm 68, I think we'll close there. That's going to keep me from doing everything I wanted to do tonight. But if we don't get snowed out tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. So, Ephesians 4, 8, and 10. But I want you to turn to Psalm 68.18. This is about... The reconciliation of rebels, not their exclusion, but their inclusion in the new creation by reconciliation. After all, what is reconciliation if not the making of friends out of enemies? What is reconciliation if not, as Paul said, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And if while we were yet enemies, Christ reconciled us to God, how much more now can we be saved from a present lifestyle of wrath by his life? If by his blood we've been saved by wrath, how much more will we who have been saved and reconciled and made friends with God be saved from wrath through him? The wrath is not future wrath per se but the wrath that is already unveiled from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth. And I think that may have to apply to Christians who suppress the truth of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, making their tradition something that is not good. 
Jesus said in Mark 7, I know you're still turning there, Mark 7, he says, by your tradition you have invalidated the word of God. That makes tradition, in that case, evil, a suppression of the truth. But if you're in Psalm 68, 18, you will notice the translation. Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 4, 8. He who descended he who ascended first descended to the lower parts of the earth. And it says in Psalm 68, 18, you ascended to the heights, taking away captives. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord God might live there. There, the Lord God, Yahweh there is a, is a name for the... City of Jerusalem, incidentally, the New Jerusalem. But the CSB notes, that's the Holman Christian Standard Bible notes that I'm paying more and more attention to lately because they're usually quite good. On Psalm 68.18, gives allusion to Deuteronomy 21.10 and Ephesians 4.8, where Paul alludes to this passage. We're given the alternative translation because they say the Hebrew is obscure. It's tough. It's hard to translate but their translation of Hebrews or, or of Psalm 68:18 from the Hebrew would read more like this. And I don't know why it's not in the text. It says, even those rebelling against the Lord God's living there or even rebellion, even rebels are living with the Lord God. In other words, the vision of the future is that Christ leads captivity captive so that even the rebels Live with the life of God. And this is what Paul alludes to in Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. He who ascended is he who first descended to the lower parts of the earth and then ascended with a captive host of captives that Christ may ultimately fill everything up with himself. The lower parts of the earth, Sheol, Hades, whatever you want to call it, filled up by Christ. The heavens filled up by Christ. All the earth, all creation filled up or comprised by Christ. But in any translation, however you cut it, even the rebellious end up living with the Lord God, with the Lord God's own life. And this is verified and indicated in 1 Peter 3.16 to 21 and 1 Peter 4.6, in which we are told that the dead who were disobedient or rebellious while the patience of the Lord waited have the gospel preached to them. And though they died the death of the flesh, says Peter, they will live together with the Lord by the Spirit. That's as universalistic as you can get. And that also puts to flight the oversight of insight by tradition that dead people can't have the gospel preached to them and you can't make a decision after death. That doesn't, it's not what the scripture teaches. It's what tradition says. And tradition, if you accept it above the scripture, it has the effect of nullifying the word of truth. So in any translation, even the rebellious end up living with the Lord God and with his life. I'll close with Gregory Nissen, N-Y-S-S-E-N, which is another way of referring to Gregory of Nyssa. His sister was Macrina. She was a theologian in her own right, an ascetic, the founder of some kind of ascetic group, but she believed in the universal 
effect of the cross and the universal salvation and taught her brother Gregory. And Gregory's brother also was Basil. And these all were a family of theologians. Gregory Neeson was the most insightful and innovative follower of Origen. In his words, and he wrote, his two most famous books were called The Soul and the Resurrection and his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15.28, which was called simply When the Son Himself. Gregory Nissen defines the eventual apocatastasis as the culmination and realization of Christian hope. And it's telos tes elpidos, the completion of hope. Telos, and then it's right in his writing. He wrote in Greek, telos tes elpidos. The completion of our hope, the realization, the end, the goal of our hope. So I find this interesting because in second, or rather First Timothy one one, Paul says Christ Jesus is our hope, and he says, and Jesus identifies himself as the telos, the goal to which all of God's plan is aiming. And so you put First Timothy one one together with Revelation twenty two thirteen, Christ is indeed our hope and the fulfillment of our hope. In fact, Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says that Christ is in us as the hope of glory. And not just the hope that we will be glorified. That's how I used to interpret it. Christ is in me the hope of glory. That means that he in me is the hope of me being glorified. And then I widened that gyre and said that means I'm hoping that all Christians will be glorified. But now I'm realizing the hope of glory is the hope that all of creation will be glorified in God and God will be glorified in all creation. Why would he do anything else? Why would he be any other way than redeeming his whole creation? Again, when Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in Romans 5, 2, that hope is our confident expectation that God will be all in all and that that will occur in the telos, the end or the goal, the term to which all creation is headed and the plan of God is headed. For the word telos is found most prominently in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes to telos, Paul says, when the Son hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to him, then the son himself, that's Gregory's famous title, then the son himself, will also be subjected to him who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. This can only mean that when the son subjects himself to the father, and that ends up with God the father being in all and all in the father, that when Christ sub submits himself to the father, he is submitting all of created reality, minus death, evil, sin, and Hades, to God. So speaking of the telos in connection with Rev the book, 
And we'll end on that. Ramelli observes, quote, the dialectic of inclusion and exclusion expressed in Revelation 21.8 and 22.15 is dynamic and will be overcome in the end. In the telos, only death and hell and the power of evil will remain excluded or rather will be annihilated and no longer exist. Is this the message of Revelation? Most certainly it is. Most certainly it is. The dialectic of exclusion and inclusion is overcome. That means there's no dichotomy between human beings that are excluded and human beings that are included. And that's what happens in the end. Well, I think I'll stop there. I have more to say, but that's enough for tonight. So thank you, Father, that you have, in fact, I think, clearly directed us in the way of Lonergan's analogy of the scissors action in this teaching for 2016. The upper blade is that which we have established in years past, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. That this lofty theological truth is being verified by specific biblical data, even down to the exegetical use of the conjunction chi, even down to the hendiades of death and Hades together, show unequivocally and clearly and with power and documentation that this lofty truth is in fact documented in the scriptures of truth. Thank you, Father, for that.